rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So, Richard, you've now seen the first series of In the Flesh and the first two episodes of Series 2, which also happens to be, unfortunately, or perhaps not, depending on your point of view, the last season of this show. Can you already see the differences in how this is approaching its story? Oh, yeah. This is much more of a plot-heavy season. There is, I mean, certainly all the plot elements were things that I had you know, you can extrapolate from the first one. It's going a little more into this undead prophet. It's going into kind of the reasons why this happened. But um, the first one took all of the plot stuff as more ambient. It's really just a vehicle for the characters. The characters are certainly very important and very prime in theirs, and we've got some new characters um, in this one. But it is a little more of the machinations. There is something more overarching going on the undead liberation army is planning something there is something about a second rising this mp is doing something everybody has a goal there is this is leading to a thing and frankly especially what you've told me about well it was canceled it had no i feel this is going to end on a very unresolved note because there does seem to be a lot that is here obviously this is a very well thought out world well thought out uh situation and all of that but um i do feel so far at least that the broadening has worked for it um you know we do have an idea of who these characters all are and uh, putting them into a you know the first one was just a very personal thing it was about kieran it was about his family it was about the people that are around him um this is making about something much more events that are kind of bigger than everybody. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I, I think that there's some things there that are, that are right. And I think there are some things there that I, I kind of have problems with because I don't think the show is doing a bad job of broadening out its story or its world a- at all. But I, I don't know if I completely buy the sort of complete lack of attention that all of the characters seem to have to the outside world. You know, it's something that I think might have been helped if we actually knew how much time had passed between the first and second series. Yeah, it's implied to be less than two. It's between a year and two years because they mention uh, Jem is 20. She's mentioned it at one point and she was turning 18 in the first one. Right. Yeah. It's like like that's what it suggested to me, and two years does seem to be about uh, a, a, a fine amount of time for the changes that have happened. Again, enough that there are changes. These people are in different places. It has been a while since Kieran and Amy have seen each other, for example, but not long enough that this is distant memories. Right, because, I mean, I think that that works for some of the characters. I mean, certainly the, the first episode... Uh, starts out with this very dramatic scene of a of a uh, undead attack on a tram in in some city. I'm assuming it's Manchester or something like that. You know, the character of Ken, whose wife was killed at the end yeah. of the first episode of the first series, has decided to leave Rorton, which, you know, hey, I don't think that's a terrible idea. And uh, he unfortunately gets murdered as well as his son or grandson or whoever that is. Whoever that kid is, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, that that sets up the... I think it's interesting because obviously this show has more of a budget this season or series, but it doesn't still have a huge one. I mean, I don't think the show could have pulled off a scene like in the second episode when Jem 
uh, has that nightmare about taking a test and then being attacked by a horde of undead. Yeah. You know, I just don't think the show would have been able to pull that off on a budgetary level in the first series. But, you know, and certainly filming in the city and things like that. They're using the budget mostly to have more people around, it seems. Yeah, the the, the town feels larger. The town is able to... Uh, is is able to have a school, for example, a high school. Now they do say it's the Rorton Valley High School, so assumedly it, it's catchment area, like a, yeah. a few different towns or whatever. Um, but in in some respects, I, I don't feel like enough. I don't feel like enough changes have happened. If it is indeed two years, because you know, Kieran's parents mostly seem the same. Their relationship doesn't really seem to have developed very far. And Kieran himself doesn't seem to have really changed that much. I I don't know if I necessarily buy the fact that he would have just like hung out in Rorton for the next for like the next two years after the events of the first series. Maybe maybe so. I don't know, but it it, it just strikes me as a little strange. I mean, part of it does seem that you know he wants to travel and. I get the same, you know, he's working at the pub. He's not exactly getting a job that's going to give him a lot of money. So maybe he really just does, all right, I'm putting my head down for two years, you know, to save up enough so that way I can indefinitely travel through Europe and not have to worry about anything. I mean, that to me seems the closest that I can, you know, explain that. Again, I can see why he would want to get out of town, want to do more stuff, uh, why he might not want to go to school or something like that. But Yeah, I, I, I think that makes sense. But the the other the other part of that, I mean we'll definitely talk about the, the character of the MP, Sandra, because I also oh. have I also have issues with her. But Okay. I think I mean she's obviously like a UKIP stand in or something, but we'll get to that. But I, I do think that in, in, in some respects the the world building doesn't work for me because they in the second episode, it's revealed that they have this PDS give back scheme, which is like a fantastic little bit of British uh, uh, flavor in in the series. But Kieran got his passport renewed, and I know that these are sort of nitpicks, but it it speaks to a. I don't I don't want to say that this is, this isn't well thought out, but it just seems odd to me that Kieran was able to get his passport renewed in the first place. I mean, Sandra has this very bizarre line about. Maxine, sorry, I don't know why I'm calling her Sandra. I have, yeah, oh, because I have it in my notes, but her name is Maxine. You're right. Um, Sandra, I think, is someone else. Uh, that you know, for example, she says, "Oh well, you got the wrong form." No, <laughs> honestly, though, I took that to be complete bullshit. Though, I this seems like the kind of thing that's rolled out overnight, almost. And yes, I, and I, no. I, 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 I didn't get the sense that this is something that's done legitimately, that's done on the up and up. I think this is something that Victus is able to pass through very quickly without any real thing. And so I do think Kieran's passport was legitimate. If he had left, if the train had left an hour earlier, he would have been on it and he would be in France and everything would be fine. Like, I think this is just the kind of... I, I, I think this is Victus just doing something really shady. I mean, that was the impression that I got from and it. I, and I agree with you. I, I think that that's totally reasonable. I, I don't think that the passport was invalid either. But it, it just strikes me as a, as a, you know, if you're going to broaden out the world like this, you, yeah. you need to do the work to make it believable. And to some respects, I think the show is doing a good job with that. In some respects, I don't think it's doing a good job with that. You know, I need to know uh, the history of Victus. I need to know how many MPs they have in Parliament. Like, what is the yeah, deal Yeah, was Victus... Here? 
did Vic just exist before the rising, for example? I mean, I would doubt it. Um, it's it's not a real political party, obviously. No, uh, but I mean, within the world of the show, it could be. I mean, the rising isn't real. You know, I well, I, Victus could... is Latin for living, isn't it? So I would not okay. think so. Um, and so, or it's it's Latin for something like that. So I, I would I would say no, Victus did not exist before the rising, and I I certainly can buy that a political party would form yeah. in response to this. I mean, you know. Um, the United Kingdom is a country that had a very, very small rump faction in the Conservative Party, and then you kept putting pressure on the government. Uh, a small resu- what faction? Rump. <laughs> okay, resulting in, well, we are talking about a British show, so I have to bring in British terminology. <laughs> uh, you know, that that uh, brought about a, a very, very ill-thought-out referendum that that is, you know, ending in, in mass pandemonium in, in british politics because of brexit so i, I totally buy that that like a, a party like victus would exist yeah. but i don't really understand like how they have so much influence because and i don't know maybe it's just a sly commentary on ukip again i don't know but so i'm sorry i mean this was made before brexit happened but oh, obviously yeah. is part of the dialogue in england at the time that this show was being made yeah, right. I mean, this was uh, twenty. What was this? Two thousand nine and twenty ten. The Brexit referendum happened in twenty fifteen. Um, so or twenty sixteen. Sorry. Yeah, the referendum. God, it's like time. Just like you know. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. 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 Time is so ridiculous anymore. Um, but yeah, the the referendum happened in twenty sixteen. The the general election that you know uh, reelected the Conservative Party uh, and and David Cameron uh, happened in twenty fifteen. And I don't, I don't know how much you know about Brexit, and I don't want to turn this into a Brexit podcast. But essentially, what was happening? Yes, is that, you do. You know you do. Yeah. Why am I lying? <laughs> Uh, essentially what happened is that David Cameron had um, what they call backbenchers in, in the British Parliament, which is just... Um, backbenchers to the rump party? Exactly. Uh, that had issues with uh, the European Union, and David Cameron mm-hmm. was possibly facing a leadership challenge. So he decided to throw them a bone and say, oh, yeah, okay, well, you know, if, if, we, if we're reelected in 2015, I'll, we'll put a referendum out to the voters and blah, blah, blah. And no one ever thought that it would actually pass yeah and so you know what what britain is living through now this sort of existential nightmare um which is you know different to the existential nightmare that americans are living through but this is a time of existential nightmares of all sorts um i think australia was also going through one a month or two ago with this same-sex marriage uh, uh plebiscite which was not binding in any way and just apparently was there for fun to make gay people feel shitty in australia um a lot of shitty stuff is going on in the world that, you know, in a sense, what you get from this is that, you know, Brexit did not appear out of nowhere. And so yeah. even if the term Brexit did not exist when this show was made, UKIP certainly existed. And and I really do read this show, especially now. I didn't necessarily read this show um, this way at the time, but I certainly do read In the Flesh now as partly a, a commentary on British politics and 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 UKIP, and especially the second series, which has this party evictus. Now, I mean, in the first season, we said, you know, zombieism is for queerness, it's for drug addiction, it's for mental illness, it's for... Uh, uh, but in this, it's also taking immigration and foreignness into, into account much more. Absolutely, because I, I don't think it's incidental that Kieran decides to leave and go to Europe. I mean, yeah, and we're told that Europe is a little more friendly towards that kind of a thing. Yeah, 
and and from everything I'm I'm hearing about the United Kingdom now, it, it is becoming much more hostile to to immigrants, for example. So these are certainly not uh, issues that are unrelated. And I think that if in the flesh had come on a few years later, it probably would have been even more uh, clear that this was a commentary on that. But, you know, I don't know, leaving all that aside, I mean, I think I've said my piece about my sort of problems with the larger world building. Um, And I will say, I don't know what parts of that is to do with you've seen the rest of it. You know what's, you know, going to happen. You know what the kind of I mean, part of me feels like it could just be very subtle and there will be other stuff that explains it. So I don't have as much of a problem yet with it. Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, But I want to talk about some of the characters because you know in, in the first podcast we did on in the flesh you said that really the the two main characters of that were Kieran and Bill which yeah. um I certainly had not thought about before but but I think that that was was really right and this series I don't know who the main characters are I I certainly think that Kieran is being shunted aside in a way he's not the driver of this story he's not the focal point of this story in the same way even in these two first episodes, Amy is getting much more screen time, much more development than yeah. she got in the first series where she was basically, a, you know, a gag character. Um, and, and partly that has to do with the fact that, and this might be a funny thing to say, but like the show has more room to breathe because it has six episodes as opposed yeah. to three. <laughs> but uh, I mean, part of it is that Kieran's character development has happened already. Like the first season was about him kind of figuring out who he is, figuring out how to communicate with his family. And certainly there are some issues there, but um, uh, he's where he is. I mean, if, again, if this whole thing with the passport and this and the uh, give back scheme and all of that didn't happen, he would be in France living his best life and, you know, arting everywhere. And so he is more of a witness to everything that's happening. I mean, he is a bit of a flatter character, but that is partially by design. And so characters who were flatter in the first season, I mean, Jemima has a lot more uh, to do in this season. I would say she's a little more of a main character than he is at this point in time. She's the one who, uh, the sister, Jem. Oh, oh, yeah. Her name is Jemima? Yeah. Oh. What a a weird name for a British person to have. Anyway, what a weird name for anyone to have. Um. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the characters have weird names, but that's, you know, Kieran. I mean, what kind of a name is that? That's a common, I guess that's a common I, enough name. I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. I mean, in, in a certain in a certain look at it, yeah, Kieran got his character development in the first series. And, you know, the second series is not uh, a story, uh, is not a personal story about Kieran. It is really uh, looking, using Rorton as a microcosm for the entire mm. nation and, and, you know, looking at the ways in which the the PDS uh, in Rorton are being affected by larger events. There's also all this talk about the the fir- the second rising and Rorton seems to have some sort of significance in the mythology that is built up around that. And there's yeah, also it's implied this... that it's where everything began, and also further implied that Kieran is the first person to rise or something like that, uh, which is going to be important somehow. But which you know, I have feelings about that as well. But we will talk yeah. about those more in later episodes about in the flash um i don't know i think that in in a large part what you're seeing is that this show is very interested in uh 
kind of being the British Buffy in a way, in, in hmm. a sense. And in the first season, it wasn't really like that. I mean, this was a very, very personal drama that didn't have much to do with all of these sort of mythologies and big bads and et cetera, et cetera. And this season is definitely much different than that. Well, you know, I mean, that and I know one of the common it's not criticism and critique isn't really the right term, but the thing a lot of people note about Buffy is that Buffy herself is a very flat character. She's probably the least interesting character on the show. She is the axis around which all of this other stuff happens. I mean, characters like Willow or Giles or even Xander, and of course the villains are more interesting than Buffy is. I I think that's right. Yeah. And, You know, I think that, you know, it's never really been clear to me what the influence of Buffy the Vampire Slayer was, Um, but it seems that it has had some influence because I definitely think that In the Flesh was was influenced by it. So let's talk about uh, Maxine then, because I guess I'm getting all of what I don't like about these two episodes out before we talk about anything I do like. I don't. I don't like her. And what I mean by that is you're not supposed to like her, right? She's obviously the villain of these of this yeah. series. But she's so transparently evil that I have issues with her characterization. Yeah, she is your... I don't know, because on the one hand, I don't find her to... I actually like her as a villain because she is so horrible. She is the kind of character that you want to reach through the screen and strangle. And, you know, there is that very deliberately ineffective way to make her sympathetic when she has the toy train. So obviously she had a child who was killed in the rising at some point, And now she really just hates those zombies. You know, she is somebody who, you know, lost a family member on 9-11 and now is combating terrorism any way they possibly can. I mean, she does... Well, it's more like, I wouldn't say combating terrorism any way they can. I would say it's more like someone who lost someone in 9-11 who hates Muslims now. Yeah, that that's that that's actually very uh, a better point to make. Um, in some ways, if this had, if I'd seen the show pre-Trump, I would feel that she is cartoonish. Uh, having seen, you know... <laughs> in a world with Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump and uh, and all of these motherfuckers and Steve Bannon and all of that, Maxine Martin seems like a completely realistic character to me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can see that argument, certainly. I, I think that now, of politics course, tends well, to not have those types of characters more than American politics does. But, you know, that might just be my rose-colored glasses uh, as well. <laughs> I see Steve Bannon as a cartoonish villain because I've only seen him on TV. We are seeing more intimate glimpses into the world of Maxine Martin, and she is a cartoonish villain in that way. Um, again, I think it works for me. I think she is the a perfect villain for this piece. I don't think I think that the show has characterized the PDS sufferer so well that I think there is no. Uh, legitimate reason to hate them, if you know what I mean. I mean, you can certainly, and people like like those who have the attack on the train. Certainly, they are they are bad people, quote unquote. But um, and I also don't know what they're trying to like do there. I mean, I, I, I get terrorism and everything, but if people are saying that you're like bloodthirsty killers your response is to i don't know it just it doesn't something about that doesn't make sense to me but on the one hand it does on the other hand there is the 
thing of you tell somebody that they're a terrorist often enough and, you know, they're going to – I don't know. This is this is going off into that really stupid argument. Oh, you called us Nazis so many times, so we just became Nazis. I mean that's that's not – that is a stupid bullshit argument. At the same time, I do think that if you are being treated as violent and you are oppressed – I mean there is the line that – um what's his name at the very – uh the old dude at the beginning of the – uh episode says right before the attack um you know you pick when you people think they're being picked on enough they're going to lash out i mean i think there is a i mean to me they're talking about the second rising i think the second rising is going to be a more deliberate rising as in an uprising as in a rebellion as in a revolution um i think that the undead liberation army is ultimately going to recognize that the government has you know is is legitimately oppressing them and that they need to they are at the point where they do need to fight back i mean mm. and so I, I i i think these are early stages of that whether or not the attack on the train was a was three people you know or or a small group of people who you know did this with no other sex sanction or they are part of a larger design in a way that's almost irrelevant those those people on the train believe that you know, the living society has oppressed them too much and that they need to strike back deliberately this time. Yeah. And I, I think that, I mean, I don't want to move away from, from Maxine quite yet because I have one other thing to say yeah, about her. But the the one thing that I will add to that is the the undead politics of these two episodes are, are the one part of the world building that really work for me. You know, because we all we have the undead liberation army that that has this almost sort of religious implications there with terms yeah. of disciple and the undead prophet and all those things. And, you know, religion is also a huge part of this this show that, that we haven't really touched on, but, you know, perhaps we can. Um, but I also think that in terms of the fact that Simon, for example, is so insistent on the fact that the attackers on that train were not part of the Undead Liberation Army, you know, that implies that there are splinter groups that are more fanatical or more violent. And you can really see how this could spiral out of control very quickly. So Simon is obviously the undead prophet himself, right? Like that. This is my guess, and I mean, I, 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 I he said that 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 they're not part of this with a certain amount of authority and knowledge. I don't actually remember if he's the undead prophet or not. I want, and say, it also, I want to say no, but I, I, I can't say that for sure. And it also, I'm also open to that was a season three plot twist. Yeah, that could certainly be. Um, the one, the one last thing I want to say about Maxine before we move on to something else is I'm kind of with you, but I think the show aired at the end of the first episode when it had her not call an ambulance for the, victim. yeah, like that was the, that. that was the one thing that was a little too far for me. I, I can't really, for someone who ostensibly wants to protect the living so much i mean certainly the vicar was an obstacle and her goals whatever her goals are we we don't quite know yet but it it, just a little too cartoonishly evil for me i would have rather her call 999 and then you know he dies anyway or something i mean yeah i certainly can see what the show was trying to do there like yes you think you're simp- like at the end of the first episode, maybe it's unclear whether or not she's a bad person. And so you need to indicate that she is a really bad person. <laughs> and maybe she is really that bad, but it just something about it just doesn't it doesn't I work mean, for me. For me, I think of her as the kind of person who is so into her own self-preservation and who is very deliberate and very methodical in some ways and who does have a very 
I mean, there are a lot of scenes where she's talking to somebody and all smiles and they leave and then she just becomes blank where she's very, she's very good. And I feel she like might for be a her. sociopath, who knows? Yeah, I, I, I think she is fairly sociopathic. And for, but for the thing about a lot of sociopathic people, particularly, particularly intelligent ones, um, and, you know, we've been talking about the same kind of thing on Discovery, but she would know that it would be very bad if somebody placed her in the vicar's house. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yes, yeah. the, you know, this is a very remote village. There's probably no one around. Nobody saw her leave the house. But in the tiny, tiny chance that they did, she has nothing to do with, you know, uh, I, I think she's smooth enough that she would be able to you know, explain that to him. I mean, hell, she could just wait around 10 minutes until he dies and then just call and say, oh my God, I was talking with the vicar and, you know, he was getting very passionate about this thing and I tried to calm him down, but he, you know, and she had, you know, he was going to give her the parish records anyway, so it's not like he would have contested them or anything like that. I don't know. Again, we don't quite know her plans. We don't quite know whether he was going to um, ruin them or anything, but I don't know. It it, it 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 wasn't like she was there uninvited. It wasn't like she killed him. It wasn't like any suspicion would fall on her until she did the suspicious thing and left while he was dying. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So let's talk about Amy then. Okay. Um here now I I didn't get a chance to rewatch the two episodes, but um I think this is going to talk a little bit about Simon, or as I like to call him, Bi Man. Um, is that you know? Obviously, at the end, he is hitting on Kieran. Um, the entire time, Amy's been saying, "Oh, we're going to get married." You know, I love him. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get married to Simon. Um, I need to re-see their interactions together because I don't know. It's the two of them seemed fairly intimate together. Um. I don't know to what degree Simon is playing her, to what degree Amy is delusional, to what degree she's just being Amy. I mean, she was going to marry Kieran in the last season. You know, this might just be, you know, she's just a very affectionate and intense person and, you know, whatever, you know, oh, you know, I'm just going for one love affair. And, you know, they're just, he's just her best friend kind of a thing. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll ask the question, like, what does it even mean for the undead to have a romantic relationship? Like, can they well, have sex? We, we we know that people can have sex with undead women, uh, as Philip is has demonstrated. Um, yeah, okay. I don't know if an undead man can get to that point. Um, I don't know. I mean, again, to what to a degree, it might be irrelevant. But they also but... say that they can't feel pain, so assumedly they can't feel any like ner- like nerve stimulation whatsoever so they can't feel pleasure either so i'm not really sure what i don't know it just seems odd to me but anyway i mean i i i think part of it is a it doesn't really i i think part of it doesn't really matter um if they're not have you know you know what if zombies just are are asexual but not a romantic i mean that is certainly a thing yes that is a thing and perhaps that is the way they all are but, uh, I mean, you know, certainly I think it to, to some degree there, there's not a ton to say about Amy in these first two episodes because, yeah, essentially she has 
some sort of relationship with this undead disciple. We we don't really know what the shape of it is. We we don't know how real it is. It certainly seems real to Amy. Does it seem real to Simon? Who knows? You know, I think that that Simon is a bit of a blank slate in these two episodes. I think that's by design. I don't think that's a failing yeah. on the show's part. I think he's supposed to no. be mysterious and you're supposed to be trying to figure this guy out and what his angles are. So I don't have a problem with any of that. You know, I think that for me... Amy seems to have come the furthest of any of the characters. You know, she is definitely, she's the same person recognizably that she was in the first series, but she's also grown and changed. She's become more religious, if we can use that term. She's found a little more of a purpose in her life. I don't necessarily know if that's positive or anything. I don't know if, if everything that she's done is a good thing. I mean, the... I the the part when she's at the clinic and they find out that she's you know had been using homemade neurotriptyline and which is having certain side effects and possibly even you know not being effective enough that's certainly a I I mean I hope that acts as a wake up call to her where 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 she needs to be doing this in a more uh, clinically sanctioned uh, environment yeah and and I will just say that that you know. Without without spoiling anything, you know her tremors have a story reason. So you know Beyond that, that will be that will yeah. be revealed in the fullness of time. But yeah, I, I think that Amy's in a in a pretty good place, and if her relationship with Simon isn't what it seems to be, well, Simon is perhaps not what he seems to be. So yeah, I can't tell whether. I mean, so we're going from Amy to Simon. I think. Um, I mean, he. May, he I mean, I'd rather one... go from Simon to Kieran, to be honest with you. But you, know, uh, 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 you, you can do what you want to do. Um, I like Simon. You like Kieran. Listen, we can make both of them vaguely happy. Um, the point is, I mean, there's a lot about I, again talk about sociopathic. I don't know to what degree Simon is genuine about these things. Uh, if we we are going with the implication hmm. for right now that Kieran is somehow special, he is possibly the first to rise. That me- that possibly means something um and therefore is going to be very important to Simon who is possibly the undead prophet. I mean, I'm thinking about stuff like how Simon, you know, insists, "Oh, come in the clothes that you were buried in." And uh, one of you know one of the other people says, "Oh yeah, I recognize the shirt he was wearing, or something like that." Um, I mean, to me, that suggests that this is partially Simon trying to construct the timeline in his head and figuring out, you know, who remembers who, who doesn't remember anybody, you know, who remembers everybody, that kind of a thing. Um, and he certainly recognized that something is up, and if this is him just, as you can, as you say, the undead feel no pain, they feel no pleasure, and therefore, you know, if it's all the same, and Simon in life was not gay or into men or in any case like that, he can certainly pretend in order to keep Kieran very close to him. I mean, this is on the table right now. Um, I don't know. I I don't know if he is genuine about everything that he's felt and thought, and his. Um, I mean, he has this moment of connection with Kieran where he, you know, talks, you know, shows his track marks and, you know, is, has felt some similar things that Kieran has felt. The show is making me paranoid enough that I think this could be Simon lying about it. On the other hand, he could genuinely just be somebody who was suffering very much in life and has finally found a kindred spirit in him. And, you know, he's 
he loves Amy dearly and he, you know, the two of them are best, you know, are BDFF or whatever, but, you know, he just doesn't feel that way. Again, it can go either way. It's very ambiguous, um, as you say, by design and in a way that I like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that partially this might be colored by the knowledge I have from the, the rest of the of series. But I don't know. I, I think that Simon is on the up and up. I, I like him. And, you know, certainly there there are elements to his character that, that you know, like I said before, are, are a blank slate, but that's by design. And I don't think he's done anything bad, you know? And, and I think that the one thing that I will say f- for in Simon's defense, perhaps, if I need to defend him, is that, you know, Amy certainly is the type of character that or the type of person that, you know, would would take bits of information that people give them and then sort of like extrapolate out a relationship based on that. You know, she she might yeah. be it might be a little bit of wishful thinking on her part. And we'll, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, I don't know. We don't even know if Karen is interested in Simon. We have no idea what's happening with that. But, you know, there are there are other more important things going on besides that. Yeah. Um, like the fact yeah. that Jim murdered someone. But Oh, her little f- weird-looking friend. He's so weird-looking. I know, but he... I, that poor kid. And how horrible would it be to be, like, 14 forever? I mean, Christ, but... Oh, God. I... Well, go again, ahead. the thing about being a zombie is... And 14 forever is you don't have boners all the time, at least. That is true. That is true. Although I kind of miss the boners all the time, but, you know, <laughs> hey. Six of one, half dozen of another. I would be 17 again. I would be 26 again, but I wouldn't be 14 again. I, I guess let's put it that way. Okay. Well, I, I, I guess we're talking about Jem now. So so let's talk about Jem. I mean... Yeah. She's finally getting some PTSD that she should have had. Um, or should I say PDSTSD? <laughs> Good. Well played, Richard. Well played. I wrote that one down the other day as I thought I thought about it at work, and I've been really excited to use it. Um, yeah, poor Jem. Uh, she is not doing well. She is not doing well. People think she's doing well. She is being manipulated by women at school that apparently she thinks are her friends and that aren't her friends. Uh, she murders someone at the end of the second episode. Mm. Yeah, she's not in a good place. She's she's drinking very cheap cider out of like two liter bottles. Well, that's... to be fair, she was doing that in one of the first times we saw her. That's kind of her thing. But... She likes to drink. That's fine. Uh, yeah, I don't. You know, I don't know that there's a ton to say about her because her storyline is perhaps the most. Uh, it's the most self-contained in a certain sense. We're kind of level setting where she's at. Like Jem, you know, Jem was at odds in the first season because her lifestyle was changing, and you know different things like that her friend group is changing but now now that things have calmed down quote unquote she's it's all hitting her and she has you know her 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 support network is a little bit there the dude with the beard is you know the scene where they're in the car and he's you know talking to her and you know very like yeah i've been there too like it happens you know he is one of the few people who does understand where she's at and has dealt with what she's dealing with and you know, unfortunately, she feels in a way the need to prove herself to him after she's revealed this, in a way, quote unquote, weakness in herself. And again, which ends in tragedy. And obviously, this kid's death is going to be 
the start of a larger problem. Right. Because I, I, I think that, I mean, you know, without spoiling what, what happens, you know, whether or not the, the PDS uh, sufferers have citizenship, I mean, they're still to some degree considered like people. So yeah. I don't think you can just go around and, and shoot the ones in the head that are medicated. I mean, there, there are certainly open questions about whether or not it's okay to, to kill the ones that aren't medicated. Uh, I certainly think per- perhaps the laws are such that, you know, killing them in self-defense or something is okay. But, you know, for example, uh, Maxine doesn't really have any compunction about uh, driving a, a power drill through the skull of one of them. <laughs> and, you know, in the school, you know, the teacher seems to think it's fine that, you know, Jem can machete a student who is going rabid, you know, and... Yeah, and that, I mean, the the whole... That that's kind of played very fast and loose throughout the yeah. entire show, and I don't think it ever really gets resolved that well. I mean, you know, the the thing about the the the, the whatever they call it that they take um, to to counteract the effects of the the neurotryptophan uh, for a while, um, you know, it doesn't seem to me that that would be a justification for murder, but maybe it is. I don't know. Uh, they also don't know whether the kid yeah, – they don't really know that the kid has taken this drug. They think he's just gone rabid. Again, this is a world in which people believe that and maybe with justification that the neurotriptyline can fail and that they can go to their natural state, that the neurotriptyline is the only thing that's preventing them from being rabid, which is what they really are. And certainly that teacher is not presented as a nice, rational person. He is somebody who uh, – Instead of understanding that, you know, the very, the, that the young girl in his classroom who has, you know, served as a soldier is going through some serious shit, he's treating her like the war hero. I mean, this, this is not a responsible adult. Yeah, I, I don't, I certainly don't think he's supposed to be a great teacher. And, you know, I also think that that's somewhat true that, that I guess, there, there seems to be a lack of information surrounding all of this that all of the characters have that perhaps is deliberate, perhaps not, about the nature of partially deceased syndrome and what it means to be rabid or not, what the neurotryptophan does. Yeah. You know, all I mean, neurotryptophan, like all of these things are, are sort of up in the air. And yes, I think that there is a case to be made for um, perhaps having some some safeguards in place. I mean, the one thing I will say is that, and this is probably just a budgetary thing, like I don't necessarily think that the the built environment of the world is as different as it would be uh, in mm-hmm. a, in a in a society where you have like medicated zombies walking around. You know, I think that you, people would carry weapons, and you know, I mean, there there are obviously still uh, rabid uh, undead wandering around the the fields and forests of Wharton. I mean, they one attacked uh, uh, Sandra, whatever her name is, at the guest yeah. house. So this is still not a, a completely settled, completely safe. The world is still not back to normal. But yeah, I, I still don't really, you know. It's it, kind of, I mean, it's kind of ambiguous how not back to normal the world is, though. I mean, will neurotriptyline eventually fail after a time? I don't think anybody knows. How many rabid zombies are? 
there. That could be, like, the only one for Miles, really. And it's just a, again, you would, one... You would one, think that they would be able to figure that out, though. I mean, the, the the show has been very clear about the fact that the only people that rose from their graves died in 2009. So, I mean, the United, the United Kingdom government would know how many people died in, in, in a year. And they would say, okay, well, we have this many undead uh, that are registered or whatever. Uh, yeah, where but the how... Ones at, go? How accurate were the were the record keeping during the rising? How many people did Jemima kill? How many people did the HVF in Rorton kill? How do you track that? I don't know. Exactly. So I think they can. It's, I, it's I, a fudge I, factor I, for sure. Yeah, and I, I I I think there is a lot of misinformation. Again, I've mentioned HIV. The way that this is. I mean, I'm thinking about the blonde dude in the first series who's like, oh, I got him, got bit, that's how, and they're like, no, you can't catch this, you know, this is, in a lot of the ways, the rhetoric surrounding HIV, oh, I can get it from a toilet seat or whatever, um, I, 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 I think there is a lot of misinformation, and we are told several times that, I mean, I, I, I think you have the medical, the medical establishment in the show is treated fairly sympathetically, I mean, the one doctor who sees Amy is very... He's very non. I mean, the worst he says is, "Oh, I've heard everything. Homemade neurotryptoline." But you know, from his perspective, that is kind of a stupid thing. Like you know, it 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 probably is a very sensitive chemical that yeah. does need to be made in a very particular way, and you're you're not just going to brew it in a bathtub. And you know, but otherwise, he's very kind to her. You know, the um the one woman who sees uh, what what's her name uh. Philip's mother. Oh, yeah. I don't remember her name, but yeah. Sherry or something like that. Um, Gloria. You know, she, I don't know. Yeah, she's very nice. She, again, the medical establishment is very sympathetic. I think, you know, as long as you're getting your daily dose of neurotryptoline, maybe you can even skip a day here and there, you're going to be fine. And so the medical community has placed all of these this information, all of these guidelines. This is okay if there is an odd rabid here or there, well, you know, it's not going to be that much of a problem and, you know, you can take care of yourself and things should be fine. I think it's the town's paranoia. I mean, we keep, you know, the, and the town does say we don't have a good fence. We don't have patrols and all of that. That might not be necessary. It's, but, but again, it's, it is ambiguous. And I think that's where the problem lies that, that nobody does have right information and that the people are seeing the information that's coming from the government and the medical community and disbelieving it. Yeah, I think that's certainly the case too. And and like I said in the last in last week's podcast as well, there there is this sort of north versus south thing as well in the yes. show, which is very um which is very key and part of that for sure. So I, I think the last thing I want to talk about before we wrap this episode up is uh, just briefly mention Phil and briefly mention uh, his adventures in the Undead Brothel because oh, I don't really have a lot to say about Phil. He's a very he's a very sad man who just he's wants, a sad asshole. Yeah, who just wants Amy to be his girlfriend, uh, and he should probably just like sack up and ask her out. But but he does. But uh, number one, I think he read. <laughs> He recognizes why he can't sack up and ask her out because he is doing everything he can to suck up to the people in power who are doing shitty things. And, you know, it seems like, yes, he may be conflicted. He may think that what Maxine is doing is wrong, but she's also, 
you know, oh, you're going to become an MP someday. And, you know, he completely is buying it. I mean, he doesn't even seem to recognize that, you know, when he's all, I've got these great ideas. Okay, why don't you, you know, do some bitch work for me? Like, you know, he doesn't seem to recognize that he is doing everything he can to prop up the power that is, you know, that is attacking Amy directly. And, you know... On the one level, I don't know what to to what degree he doesn't understand why Amy doesn't like him because she has every reason not to like him because as far as she knows, he's an asshole because he kind of is an asshole in public. Um, and I also don't know what degree he might recognize. Yeah, this is why she won't go out with me. I think to some degree he gets it, and I mean, I I think I have a little bit of a different read on Phil. I don't necessarily think he's an asshole. I think he's a I think he's a good guy who just doesn't really have a backbone and doesn't Uh, stand up to people you know and i think that he's he's blinded by power he's he he's ambitious and he wants to uh be an mp someday or be in some sort of position of power and you know here comes maxine making him a counselor and all these kind of things and i have questions about how exactly this entire local government works but that's probably not answerable uh but it's just he's not I mean, see, all of that seems to contradict you saying I think he's a good guy. Like, yeah, that and, you know, that I guess... and five bucks gets me a train ticket at Aurorin. You know, it, 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 I don't think you can be a good guy while showing that much of a lack of moral conviction. Well, A, it's five quid. And B, uh, <laughs> I think that maybe I'll revise that statement slightly and say that he, he has the capacity to be a good guy. Maybe. Yeah, and that's that's fair. I, I, I mean, I hope he he does grow a, a grow a backbone at some point because i mean you because... know let I mean let's get into this like i think that there are really large questions surrounding for example like you know the average germans culpability for the holocaust or something yeah. and even people that were in positions of power that had nothing to do with the holocaust directly but just kind of like didn't do anything about it i mean are they evil probably mm-hmm. but i think that evil is a very this is why we have the term banality of evil. Well, right, exactly. I mean, I was about to say, like, evil is a very dramatic concept for something which is fundamentally kind of boring. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, whether or not, you know, Maxine Martin may be a cackling, snidely whiplash villain in this, but Philip is letting her happen. And, you know, he's, I mean, I'm thinking even of moments like, you know, when Kieran's parents are reading the thing, like, oh, six months, it's gonna be fine, you know, you'll you'll get reevaluated, and, you know, Simon's like, uh, duh, none of us are going to get, I mean, this reminds me of certain conversations with my own parents, where I've, you know, talked about Trump shit, and they're like, well, this'll never happen, you know, the, 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 the checks and balances will take care of it, you know, they are expect, I think... People are expecting that the framework of society will save them when the framework of society is people like Maxine Martin. Yeah. And I think Philip may want the best for his parish. He may want, you know, everything, everybody to be happy, but he is, you know, and he may be on the face nice to everybody, but he is still the one making the zombies only room. He is still, you know, helping out Maxine. He is still letting his ambitions blind to what is right and he is 
doing that and trying to have his cake and eat it too by going to the zombie brothel. And I mean, I would not be surprised if he does not sell out the zombie brothel by the end of the series just because, you know, Maxine really wants him to. Well, it seems like there's there's some possible uh, downfall for him because that person in the window was filming him going into the brothel so yeah we'll see where that goes <laughs> I, I think the last thing i want to say is, is specifically about the undead brothel though and then how it relates to to the town of Rorton as a character because i think you can mm. also see the buffy influences on this show in the ways in which Rorton expands or contracts depending on the needs yeah. of the plot like you know Rorton apparently has one pub but it also is big enough or the valley is big enough to have a high school uh, and also a town that Rorton size like would it really be able to support an undead brothel would it really be <laughs> able to support a brothel of any type let alone one that specifically uh, employs undead prostitutes I don't necessarily think so but it's just like the show is like well we need this for the story so let's just do it and who cares which I kind of admire in a weird way yeah again it's ambiguous how much of the area this is this could be some place that's you know an hour's drive away you know in a slightly larger town but um we'll just see yeah all right well i think we'll leave it there if you have any thoughts on either of the two episodes we just talked about please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, uh, which coincidentally enough also supports our other podcast, Truckabout. Uh, coming up in December, we are releasing a very special holiday season patron special where we answered a bunch of listener questions that were sent in via various means, Twitter, Instagram, postcards, Snapchats, all sorts of things. Uh, so do go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and check that out. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we are there. Tuning in show is our username. And as always, please leave us a iTunes, Apple podcast review for tuning in. It is the best way for new people to find the show. I do not have a new review to read, but uh, if you recall a few weeks ago, I read a review uh, from a, a very nice woman who said that her fiance, Barry, turned her on to tuning in. And, and we had some uh, jokey we were joking uh words <laughs> for barry uh why he did not write a review and we actually got a facebook message from this person Whoa! right so and i asked for permission to read this so uh, uh stephanie i will not say your last name because that is weird and inappropriate uh she wrote this message and she stephanie said stephanie barry obviously obviously uh she said hi richard and eric thanks so much for reading my review smiley face oh thank you Barry is actually a Patreon subscriber. <gasps> what? Now I feel terrible. We now this is the real this this that's not even the most important part. Oh my god. We got married on September 9th, 2017 and would have loved to have you there. I think this is the first time a fan has ever told us that they would have liked to have had us at their wedding. <laughs> Which is like the most flattering thing I can think of, like ever. Oh my god! So thank you very much, Stephanie and Barry. Uh, we hope. How was the food that we didn't get to eat? Yeah, really. Send us pictures or something. Like we want to see some pictures of the wedding. Um, yeah, and uh, the food specifically. And the, fo- the food. Yes, Richard is very interested. In I'm the food really hungry had. right now. Dinner is happening, and we've been talking about zombies. <sighs> Um, yeah, so, so thank you so much for that. That that was very, very nice of you. Uh, we hope that, that you and Barry have a very long and happy life together in whatever fashion or whatever way makes you happiest. And we hope it was a nice wedding and thank you for supporting the podcast, Barry and Stephanie by 
default because you are now married and legally and financially obligated to each other. So I guess, Stephanie, you can also say you're a Patreon. In a way, we're like their children. I'm just going to leave that one alone. (laughs) All right. Well, next week, we're going to be continuing our In the Flesh coverage. Uh, We have two more podcasts to go, and then we return to the X-Files. So next week, we're going to be talking about episodes three and four. I really wish these had names. Come on. Mac, why do you...